Dr. Shim, how's it going? Hi, it's going well, but please call me Ruth. So I will call you Ruth. I will call you an unapologetically black unicorn. (laughs) When I first, um, I don't know if it was when I first, yes, when I first met you and heard you speak at an APA conference with American Psychiatric Association conference, it was with Dr. Anel Prim. And I, I was blown away. I think we were talking about health equity and I was just sort of this tag along (laughs) kind of getting my feet wet around health equity as a person with lived experience and talking about it uh, to a bunch of psychiatrists. So first of all, I have, I'm I'm just dying to know how the heck did you get into psychiatry in the first place? Like what drew you to this field? Yes. And that's a great question, but I do have to say that the blown away admiration is absolutely mutual because I also remember um, the first time I saw you present to a room full of psychiatrists. And I think it was probably that same meeting. And I was like, you are incredible. And so I'm so pleased that uh, you are are thinking that I might be an unapologetically Black unicorn because I'm just honored to be in your presence. So thank you. So I'm a psychiatrist and I got into psychiatry because for, you know, I really feel sometimes like things are just kind of faded to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because since I was a very small child, I have been very interested in mental health and particularly in psychiatry. And even when I did not know what I wanted to do with my life, I was reading articles and stories about mental health and just trying to get as much information about mental health. And it wasn't like a curiosity in a, in a negative way. It was more like just a real interest in wanting to know as much as I could about what mental illness is and how to overcome it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that led me to the decision that I wanted to go to medical school. And specifically, I went into medical school thinking that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. When I got to medical school, it was really hard. And so I remember kind of thinking that maybe I'd be a different kind of doctor, because the stigma is real. And I thought like, oh, I'm working really hard in medical school. And, you know, do I want to be a psychiatrist and have people thinking that I'm not a real doctor. So maybe I'll Wait do something else. I got to stop here for a second. So I don't know that people know that there's that kind of stigma for psychiatrists within the profession of medicine. Absolutely. Sales. It's huge. Wow. Yes. Wow. So, you know, it's funny because, you know, we have a shortage of psychiatrists in the world and particularly among people of color. We don't have enough psychiatrists out there. And part of it is because it is very stigmatized as a field within the field of medicine. Mm. I spend a lot of time encouraging students to become psychiatrists. I feel like I meet a lot of students that are closeted psychiatrists that come and tell me that they're going into family medicine or they're going into internal medicine, yet they love doing psychiatry. They love doing mental health work, but they worry about whether it would be accepted by their family, by their by their peers. And so a lot of people choose other professions and choose professions where they can do the work, where they can treat people with mental health problems, but that they can do that work under some other specialty. Wow. that That's just like, we keep thinking sometimes that to increase the number of psychiatrists and psychiatrists of color, that some of it has to do with the pay or a lot of it has to do with the pay or poor reimbursement or things like that. Yet it sounds like there's still, there's something else going on there that, that needs to be attended to around the stigma. 
Absolutely. Uh-huh. I mean, I almost became a neurologist. And I think I would not have been happy with that choice. <laughs> wow, I, think wow. I'm, I, I, I love being a psychiatrist, um, but I remember I, I, I seriously thought about something else. Yeah. I, I also meet a lot of people who do their rotations, their clerkship rotations. In medical school, you have to do internal medicine, OBGYN, uh, family medicine, psychiatry, and surgery and pediatrics. And these are your core clerkships. Mm -hmm. And um, every year I meet people who discover surprisingly that their favorite of all of these clerkships is psychiatry. And then they have to kind of do a whole mental shift in their mind. Well, am I going into psychiatry? What am I going to go into? Um, So, so we try to grab as many folks as possible, especially, um, uh, especially physician, young medical students of color um, because there's such a need. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, talking to another um, psychiatrist and we said that it's probably about 2% of uh, psychiatrists are African-American, um, which is like ridiculously low. It is ridiculously low. It's interesting um, because, and you know, I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, Social Injustice and Mental Health with my co-editor, Sarah Vinson. The reason that we are so critical about the field of psychiatry and the work that should be done to increase equity is because there there are so few of us and the field is entrusted to take care of so many yes. black people with mental health problems. Yes. And, and we have been harming people in the ways that we have gone about trying to help them. We haven't always thought about those patients, those people as like us. Yes. And if you don't see yourself in, in people, I think that that that's where the oppression comes in. That's where Mm. the harm comes in. And so we need more people to see when they're taking care of a patient, they need to see their mother, they need to see their sister, they need to see their brother or themselves. Uh, And that I think is kind of the ultimate solution to how we get to equity. Yeah. And I think from the patient perspective too, as a person receiving services, um, it can be very helpful to see the provider who looks like you because there may be a sense that they'll have a better understanding of the context in which distress is occurring. Let's just put it that way, right? Absolutely. So that if you're talking about uh, you know, low self-esteem or the effects of racism, it's not a foreign concept or it's not a concept of uh, yeah, I get it on paper because I read about it, but I don't get it because I've not experienced it, right? So it is very different. And it does provide hope for us that we see people who look like us who are providers. So how did you get into an interest in like social determinants of health, social determinants of mental health, race equity? Like, how did you go from like one thing to, well, maybe it was all one thing altogether, but how did you sort of really get into that? Yeah, I I was thinking when I was when I first got to medical school, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I, I was pretty clueless about everything in, in life when I started medical school. I was really quite young. Part of the reason I'm so focused on uh, mental health equity now is because of the way I trained. So when I was in Atlanta, um, you, medical students at Atlanta train at two different locations. They train at Emory University Hospital, which is in like the richest part of Atlanta. And they also train at Grady Memorial Hospital, which is in the poorest part mm. of Atlanta. And so the populations at those two 
settings are dramatically different. And the first thing that I noticed when I was in medical school was the derogatory ways that many instructors and and physicians talked about the patients at Grady Memorial Hospital and the positive ways that they talked about the patients at um, Emory University Hospital. And then that just collectively moved on to kind of the care. Mm-hmm. But the part that that really got me and, and what really solidified in my mind that I needed to do work in this space was as a resident physician, when I'm in my training and I'm learning about psychiatry, you spend time delivering care in those two population settings. And so the people, the providers are the same. Um, so the people that are being treated at the at Emory University Hospital are the exact same people that are treating the patients that are at Grady Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if the providers are the same, and I'm assuming the pri- providers are doing the same things, right? They're they're giving the same care, they're giving the same services, they're making the same recommendations. Then why was I seeing these incredibly different outcomes? where the patients at Emory University Hospital were getting better and recovering and they'd go back to their lives and the patient at Grady Memorial Hospital, they would never improve Mm. and they would be discharged from the hospital still sick. And and it was just this expectation. And and what I used to hear a lot of times was, oh, they're at their baseline. They're they're not going to get better. And, And that was such a disturbing comment to hear is that somebody is at their baseline. And the patients hear it too, by the way. And so we live up to that expectation. Thank you for setting that low expectation that we can live up to. Absolutely. (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's, and then, and then it's the self-fulfilling prophecy. So, so I'm thinking something else has got to be going on here because if we're providing the same care and doing the same things, either one of two things is going on. Either there is a fundamental intrinsic difference between the people at this hospital and the people at that hospital, or there is something much greater happening that's determining these outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, of course, reject the idea that there is biological or genetic difference between people of different racial backgrounds or Mm -hmm. different socioeconomic status or any of that. Um, So it had to be the other. And and that's where I started getting the language. I got the language amazingly from um, first, I first heard it of all places from um, David Satcher, the 16th Surgeon General of the United States, who um, handed me a a report uh, called Closing the Gap in the Generation, Mm -hmm. which was this incredible social determinants of health report by the commission um, of the World Health Organization. That report just laid it all out just said, there are circumstances in our society and the ways that we govern in the policies and the laws that we create that are the thing that are driving differences in health outcomes among all populations across the world. Mm-hmm. And, and then that seemed to resonate to me with this idea that that's the same for mental health. Yes. Uh, you can't you can't say that these differences that we're seeing have anything to do with anything else but the decisions that we make from our laws and the beliefs that we have about who is worthy of advantages in our society and who is not. And then we pass laws based on those beliefs and that's how we get to where we are. And that's why we see these differences in outcomes. So my work is all about how do we change one, the way people think about each other, Um, the way people think about who are the people that are worthy of advantage and who aren't. And then how do we change the laws that then set the circumstances for all of that? 
Okay, so now you see why I say you're an unapologetically black unicorn. You just did it. Um, you know, it it is it is around. And again, I'm going to say it's speaking truth to power. Like, let's not be. We're not going to be apologetic about it. We're going to be open, transparent, authentic, and just say what needs to be done. How do we do that? It's so hard for me. Like when we're looking at any of the policies that are around today, that that's up for discussion today, because you know. Uh, during the pandemic, everybody now gets it. Everybody has mental health. Ooh, ooh, big surprise, right? Everybody has it. And it cannot feel so hot when things are rough. Uh, collectively, globally, we're all struggling emotionally, right? So everybody now gets it. And now in the US in particular, there's a lot of legislative movement around um, uh, mental health for the nation, if you will, right? But a lot of the work too, it's kind of like, well, let's add more to what we already have so that people can have access to what we already have. And I'm kind of like, ew, no. (laughs) Having access to what we already have is getting going to get us what we already got, which really is not so hot. Exactly. So how do we take that power? How do we change the the narrative or the social norms in order to really address the policies that got us where we are? Yeah. Well, so, you know, there is this statement and I can't even remember who said it first, but, you know, they say all policies are health policies. And so all policies are health policies, but then all health policies are mental health policies. So that then means that every single policy created at every level is a mental health policy. So so then the work seems kind of insurmountable when you think of it that way. Because what it means is that we have to create a more representative body in all places and all spaces. And so I would then just encourage everybody, if we're going to like start to act, is to just take one step in a direction of doing something, right? And, and, and the way I think about this is kind of the way Ibram Kendi thinks about uh, racism and being anti-racist, right? With each and every decision that you make, Every single decision you make, you think, is this a racist decision? Am I doing a racist thing right now or am I doing an anti-racist thing? Because at, at each moment, you have a choice to make about, and, it's, and it changes moment to moment with each decision, which e- with each action. So it's not that people are racist. It's just that you can do a racist thing. And I feel like it's the same way for thinking about policies. Every time we encounter a decision anywhere, that is made as it relates to health or even not health. Maybe it's, you know, food access, maybe it's transportation, but every time are we thinking about, is this the best decision that's going to advance mental health or is this going to harm someone's mental health in that respect? So we could do that in our work settings. Mm -hmm. Um, We could start by just looking at, for instance, I work uh, at UC Davis There is um, a huge health system there, and that's like a big place. But we also have a small clinic that we work in. And so you can start by just if you work in a clinic, what are our policies in this clinic? What are our hours? Mm -hmm. Who are the patients that we serve? Um, What are the policies that are set up? And which ones of those are inadvertently harming, oppressing, or hurting people when we have set out to supposedly help them? Right. And so you can start very small in your in your family, in your in your personal space, and then you can just radiate out as big as you want. So you could go all the way to the federal government 
And that's about who's representing us in the federal government. And so that's where things like voter suppression, which seem to have absolutely nothing to do with mental health, have everything to do with mental mm. health. Because, because if we don't have people representing us who are us, if we don't have people with serious mental illness in, in government, Mm-hmm. then the needs of people with serious mental illness, illness will not be prioritized. So, so it's, it, it really becomes so critical to just make sure that on every level you're doing something. So you don't have to do everything. You just have yes. to do something. You just yeah. have to do one thing. Yeah. And then as soon as you do that one thing, it kind of replicates and feeds on itself and, and more happens and more happens. And I, I feel like that's how we start to move in the right direction. That's really interesting. I was thinking as you were saying that um, I went to um, a Starbucks, I believe I was in Newport Beach, and um, uh, my friend and I went into the Starbucks and in the corner, uh, this like whole corner of the Starbucks and now not a very big, wasn't a very big shop. But the first thing I noticed is they had all these affirmation um, messages on their boards. And it wasn't like, you know, coffee is wonderful to get you up in the day. It wasn't like that, right? But it was, yeah. it was more of, we're all going through a rough time. We're all in it together. Let's support each other. And I thought, wow, you know, they're just being like really direct about this thing. And in the corner, they had a, a donation box of, of food or small items that people could donate. And then it said, take so that you could donate. And then people could take as needed and reminding people, don't take the whole dang box, leave for others. You know, all of us are right. going to need a little bit here. And I thought, wow, that's just one small thing. And, you know, I know I'm talking about a gazillion dollar company that has a, you know, clearly it's a, it's a big outfit, but to think that that particular Starbucks said in our community, we want to make a difference and this is how we're going to do it and give back. And throughout the whole store, there were these very kind of uplifting messages. And then to see that box, I actually felt better. You know, I went to the beach to feel good. I am not a beach person, but this girl went to the beach to feel kind of like just needed a break. And walking in there, I was just like, I feel good. I feel good about humanity, you know, just because of this little thing in this store and a store that what three, three years ago uh, in uh, one of the Philly stores had an issue around racism. Yeah. And I, and I saw that as an issue in that store and an issue with that person versus this is a Starbucks sort of like thing um, because Starbucks does do stuff that really is um, community based to help other communities. So I was really, really impressed, but I'm, you know, keep thinking too about, you know, when we talk about serious mental illness, we still have this social norm because it's so pervasive about what people, and I'm not saying people outside of the system, people outside of the system and people within the system, meaning our providers, our policymakers, our administrators, uh, that's the system. And then outside is community who may know nothing about mental health or, you know, there's just this pervasive belief that people with serious mental illness, of course, are dangerous, you know, that they need sort of this benevolent protection, that they need these guardrails around them and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, how do we shift that belief because it's going to be critically important, I think, to start to shift that belief about the possibilities and capabilities of people, particularly with quote unquote SMI, particularly schizophrenia. Like, what do we do? You know, I think that what has to happen is there, just as we talked about the stigma associated with being a psychiatrist, there's, there's so much stigma 
um, around mental health and mental health problems. And the only thing that I think is going to really shift this is more and more people with quote serious mental illness with severe with schizophrenia with schizoaffective disorder with bipolar disorder who are functioning in really high levels to be more open and honest just like you Karis to be mm-hmm. more open and honest about what they're experiencing because what i do know is that there are a lot of people who are very high functioning who have serious quote serious mental illnesses that are petrified yes. of being found out. I teach uh, medical students that have serious mental health diagnoses that would never think of, of sharing that and couldn't feel comfortable disclosing that information um, while in medical school for fear that they wouldn't be able to get into residency training. Yes. Um, and and these are folks that become doctors, yeah. uh, and and they are functioning perfectly fine in society, and they are closeted. Yeah, we need more and more really powerful people to speak up. Yeah, um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm so thankful for people like Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles doing what they do because that's moving us yes. in that direction. Yes, and so this is this is when we come down to social norms. And, and how do we change social norms? It's really about cultivating a society of radical inclusion, right? Oh, I of, love it. of really, of really just recognizing that it is the things that are, that make us, the things that are different about us that make us so incredible mm-hmm. and being accepting of difference on a, on a large scale. Um, and so the more that we can come to be a society that is collectively inclusive, the better we can get to this place. So even as you're describing the Starbucks in, in Newport Beach, that's like an, that was an inclusive space. Yes. That was a space that was saying, like, we're looking out for our community. We care about you. Yes. And that is, I, I think that that is what, I mean, it's, I, I'm the last person to say we need more love in the world, but we, we kind of do. <laughs> yeah, we do. You know, like we, we kind of need to kind of collectively stop pitting ourselves against each other and really recognize that it is the things that are different about us, including differences in our mental health and differences in our abilities and differences in our functioning, that these are all the things that make us great. So when you started doing, um, uh, well, not when you started it, but you have a book that when I first read about it, I was like, okay, and here we go. She it's tell, tell me more about the book, social injustice. So this was work, you know, I, the, the first book that I worked on was social determinants and mental health. And that was with Michael Compton. And we were just gathering the data on how, social determinants led to poor mental health outcomes, you know, based in that work with uh, David Satcher, this idea of these social determinants lead to poor health and lead to health inequities. And we were saying, well, we just need to make that really clear on how it works from a mental health perspective, because there's actually a lot of people who think it's different, who actually think that the social determinants don't apply to mental health or they're different somehow when they're exactly the same. Right. So they just need emphasis. They, they just need to be emphasized. And because we don't always emphasize mental health in our society. So it was in doing that work and, and 
gathering that data that it started to become really clear to me that there was this underlying process that was setting the context for the development of the social determinants. And that's where it started to, I started to realize that if we didn't really tackle kind of the root cause, which is social injustice, then we weren't going to be able to solve this problem. And so that's why Sarah Vincent and I decided that we needed to think about how can we spend time in, the, in one book describing how social injustice leads to all of this stuff. Mm. And so we, we spent some time kind of orienting people to things like structural racism and social determinants of mental health. But then also we actually talk about each of the systems in our society, like the schooling system and uh, the criminal justice mm -hmm. system, which we call the carceral system because justice is not really part of what yeah. happens in that system um, and, and the housing system and the child welfare system mm -hmm. and the healthcare system mm -hmm. and the mental health care mm -hmm. system. And we, we examine how social injustice plays a role in all of those systems and how those systems then lead to poor right. mental health outcomes. And then we do the same thing for specific diagnoses and conditions mm -hmm. like schizophrenia and substance use disorder and personality disorders mm -hmm and child trauma, and we kind of go through, these are how this flawed lens of um, injustice has really shaped the way we think about these conditions mm -hmm. and led many people astray in, in how they think about, how they diagnose, how they treat these conditions. Um, if you don't have this frame of how social injustice has a role in how we thought about these conditions, then you're not going to be able to effectively uh, identify them or treat them. And then, um, and then we offer solutions. And so that's the book. That, and that's what we're hoping yeah. to accomplish is kind of guide people in the direction. Because once you have awareness, then you can yes. start to take these small steps in the right, right direction. Right, right. And I'll tell you one, one step I took. I mean, I'm taking steps in this direction all the time in my work. But one thing, um, as we worked on peer certification um, implementation in California, which is our Senate Bill 803, uh, we are one of the last states to have a peer certification um, as required by CMS for um, uh, Medicaid uh, billing. But um one of the things that was really interesting is, you know, there are already core competencies that are uh, set forth for our workforce, either in states that already have the certification, you need the core competencies to develop the training and the practice, right? So, um, and SAMHSA helped develop a uh, sort of a foundational core competencies that are sort of guidance, they're not written in stone for uh, mental health peers, substance use disorder peers, parent advocates, family advocates, and youth. And so it's all kind of in one. So all y'all need to know this baseline stuff. After that, you can get more into the specialty stuff, right? And so as we were working on this in, in, uh, in uh, California this past year, in particular, looking at the core competencies, uh, you know, everybody has cultural competency as, as one of the competencies. We, we all have it. And, and I said, you know, cultural competency is great, you know, if we want to use that term humility, which, whichever term we want to use about understanding and uh, ensuring that we are taking into consideration someone's culture and their cultural context. And what about structural competency? How do we understand the structures that cause inequities that cause that? How do we understand any of that stuff? And what is our role as a people in the workforce to address that? Where we have advocacy 
as one of our, our competencies, either self or system, but, but we didn't have structural competency. So I brought that up. Oh my, that was fun. <laughs> and sure. sort of the reaction was, oh, we don't need that because we work at the individual level. We need to just help individuals feel good. I was like, I don't want to feel good about oppression. What are you talking? <laughs> don't, 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 don't make me feel good about oppression. Let's address the oppression. Right. Otherwise, it's a, it's a cycle. You right. make somebody feel a little bit better and then something that's oppressive because it's structural hits them in the face. And then we're right back at the beginning. We shouldn't make people feel good about being oppressed. I'm sorry. Right. So it was just really interesting to sort of work through that, but we now do have uh, cultural and structural competencies as part of our core competency. So we'll be the first um, to have that. So even though we're last, <laughs> one of the last states to have it, we're the first to drive having that in our, our core competencies. And I, and I commend you so much for your advocacy on this and your willingness to push and, and make this issue happen. I, I, I don't want to um, call out. I would more like call in these folks that you spoke to um, originally that said, oh, we don't need structural competency. Because I think what's so interesting about this is back to this point about why representation matters, right? Because if you have, if you've operated from a place of privilege in which structures have not directly impacted you on an individual basis, it's very easy to say, oh, we don't have to focus on that. Mm -hmm. But if you're anyone who, who has spent any time being a minoritized person in this society, what, however you are minoritized, be it um, because of race, be it because of gender identity, be it because of um, having a mental health problem, whatever you have been that minoritizes you, that creates a system that oppresses you and puts you into a minority status. If that has happened to you, you know full well how a structure impacts your personal life and your personal world. Yes. But if you are a person of privilege who is not a minoritized person, you have no concept. Right. You have right. no ability to understand how structures impact your world in that way. And so again, I'm not calling out this person, but or these people, people? but it's such an it's such an important point about this is why we need the very people who experience these things making these decisions. And so thankfully you were at the table and you were able to push this forth. Um, and we need more of you because you're only one person. Yes, we I need know. more of you at every table, right? We need more people with more diverse experiences who understand how structures oppress people. We need people at every decision-making table. And one thing did happen that I want to give voice to that we have to understand, too, that I don't think folks understood is when there were a few people of color who said, no, we don't need this. I don't need to talk about that. I don't need to fight that. Then all of a sudden, other folks who hadn't had these experiences were like, well, see, they said. That's and true. I understood it as the pain, the trauma, the, you know, we know about self-stigma. Um, all of that was wrapped up in. I understood the pain of trying to fight something that has hurt us so deeply may have us say, we don't want to address it. Absolutely. And so that's how I heard what they were saying versus a, no, we don't need it. I heard it's just too painful. It's true. But also I, I think, so, so yes, there is self-stigma, there's internalized racism, there's yes. internalized discrimination on every form, but also there is the very clear knowledge of how the system currently operates. 
And I think that it's a, a perfect example of this is how we think about cultural competency. So we've all thought that cultural competence is important and that people need to be able to work with and, and get along and interact well and have an understanding of other cultures that that's critical. Mm-hmm. But the rollout particularly in the United States, of how to train people to be culturally competent has been relatively disastrous. Oh, yeah. Train, um, one because, and done, we're done. We've done it. And I'll tell yeah. you what's so fascinating about psychiatric education across residency programs. Cultural psychiatry is always relegated to if you have a person of color, they teach it mm-hmm. and, and they don't get a choice about it. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a person of color in in an institution at a at a teaching residency program, you will be if you're the only one, you will be tapped mm-hmm. to teach about cultural competence, whether you have any sort of expertise or not. Yes. And then if there are no people of color, then you just pick some poor, unfortunate soul and you force them because we have these requirements. Now yes. we say you have to be you have to train resident psychiatrists on cultural competence. And so if you end up being one of these poor residents who is taught by somebody who has no interest in the topic, who's forced to teach it because it's a requirement, and that is how disasters happen. And that's how you sit in a room and say, this is what Black people do. This is what white people, well, they don't say that. They say, this is what black people do. This is what Latinx people do. This is, and and that's how many people are taught cultural competence. And so I think there are a lot of people that come from that experience and know that, that yes, if you mandate a, a structural competence, it may go very badly and it may conduct harm. It may harm people rather than help them. So so I do think that that is a reasonable fear and we have yes. to be very mindful of the quality yes. of training yeah. that people receive. Yeah, so I'm going to ask, and I, I think you gave us one thing that we could all do, which is to take that one small step. If there's anything else that you would like to leave the listeners with of one thing they could, one thing that they could do to change the trajectory of any of this, uh, what would that be? I I always feel that we don't know our true power most of the time. And so if we are trying to be a society where we are more inclusive, then the work involves being stewards of that inclusivity. And so I think Mm. that the one thing that we all can do is be better about exercising our voice and speaking up when people would harm uh, spaces of inclusion and, and, and prevent places from being inclusive. So if you see um, something happening, say something, do something about something, it in the moment, in the something. moment. And so that's something that everybody can work on. It's hard because I know when I've been in spaces and someone's saying something that's discriminatory, you, you start reeling um, and you don't always speak up. And I think that if more and more people started speaking up and saying, and, and you know, you don't have to be mean about it, but you just have to say that's not tolerated that we don't use that kind of language here. We don't say those things. I think that that will start moving us in the space where we become a more inclusive society. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Dr. Shem. We could keep on talking and my mind is always blown and grown. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for inviting me. I had, I had a great time. Great. So I want to thank our listeners for listening in and remind everybody more next week. So join in next week as well. Thanks so much.